Welcome to Myth versus Craft. Welcome to episode 12 of Myth vs. Craft. My guest today is guitar great Pete Thorne. Pete is an accomplished musician with an impressive track record both as a session player and as a sideman. He's toured with a who's who list of artists, including Chris Cornell, Don Henley, and Melissa Etheridge. Chances are you've seen at least one video of Pete demoing guitar gear. His YouTube channel has nearly 11 million views, which isn't surprising once you see how good his demos are. Pete is also a successful solo artist. Since 2011, he's released an album and three singles, all available on iTunes. All in all, he really seems to have it together. He has a thriving career that's exemplary of how a modern-day musician can stay busy by working hard and branching out. Let's start by listening to a bit of the first track from his solo album, Guitar Nerd. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I understand that you were 10 years old when a kid moved to your neighborhood and not only taught you your first guitar chords, but also introduced you to a whole new world of music. What role, if any, had music played in your life up until that point? Previous to that, I actually started playing violin uh, at like, I guess I was nine. So I was kind of into that and I had a Really cool uh, violin teacher, actually. He was great. I really played fiddle. I was like kind of like into like, you know, like playing like Irish, like jigs and stuff like that. <laughs> and I don't know exactly like why I gravitated towards that. I, I don't have a clear cut memory of like why I wanted to play violin, to tell you the truth, but I just did. And um, it's, a, it's a really good question. I mean, I don't like what was the, what spurred me on to do that. But so I had started reading music and, and playing violin at nine. And then sort of discovered rock and roll at, at yeah, around 10, uh, when that, uh, yeah, friend of mine, you know, this kid moving in my neighborhood, we became friends and he just was really, really advanced, you know, uh, as a listener and, uh, and also as a musician, he had a huge record collection and, uh, and could play keys and some guitar and stuff. So that was really the, the spark that got me into music. Uh, but I don't, I don't really come from a musical family, although my, my sister's a, a huge fan of She's kind of like a like a metal fan, really. She was way into like you know, like when Metallica first came out and yeah. stuff. She knew all about them before anyone else, and so there was that. She might have this older sister that was, you know, that side of it, the kind of like heavy rock stuff. Just wasn't really like I'd never thought about playing music or anything like that. I didn't really have that spark yet. Dave Grohl thinks that the climate in the U.S. Northwest is one of the ingredients that helped spark the Seattle music scene in the '90s. The thinking being that rainy, gloomy weather entices people to spend more time indoors playing music. You grew up in Edmonton, Canada. Were basements yeah. in Edmonton full of musicians staying out of the cold? Yes. Yeah, I think Dave Roll's right about that. I've actually talked to Chris Cornell about that, too. I mean, it's like you, you just spend more time kind of working on your thing. And there's two factors. I think it's like... <clears throat> I also heard Chris mention this, and I think it's true, like... Uh, he was talking about um, if you're a popular kid, like maybe really good at sports or something like that, it, you know, you tend to spend more time like outside and playing with other kids and stuff like that, or, or, you know, not necessarily like inside alone, honing some craft. Right. So 
yeah, maybe sort of the nerdier kids or the more social outcasts or, you know, uh, sort of more introspective or introvert kids, you know, tend to spend more time <laughs> owning some crap like sitting there playing an instrument. And then definitely, the, yeah, the weather's the factor because you're inside, you can't go out. You know, if it's a beautiful day outside, it's, it's, I guess, more difficult to stay inside and practice, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I definitely think there's something to that. What was the local music scene like in your in your teens when you were first started, you know, playing and, and trying to put together a band and playing some shows? There's, there's always been kind of like a, a healthy sort of underground punk rock scene, I remember, in, in Edmonton. Um, and there's like bands like SNFU and stuff that came out of there. That, so there was that element. Besides that, there was like a, a cover band circuit in Canada. So the bars would generally hire bands that would play uh, from Monday through Saturday. Sunday, there was usually no band. And there were these, these clubs where, you know, band would roll in. And generally, bands would have their own PA and lights and a show. And, and they'd, ro- they'd roll in and set up, sometimes on Sunday, and then they'd, they'd do their thing Monday through, through Saturday. And there'd be like two or three sets a night. And these bands had like quite impressive setups usually, but they were playing covers generally. Right. So it was like, you know, tribute bands, you know, there was a Doors tribute. I remember there was an Alice Cooper tribute band where the guy would literally like, he'd have the, like the boa constrictor snake, like Alice had stuff like <laughs> that and crazy costumes. And he did like a full on Alice Cooper thing. You know, so I remember that uh, some really good friends of mine were in a band called Click. That was really one of the highest paid and really well-known bands in the Western Canadian circuit. And they would do everything from Rush to the Who to Zeppelin and really, really well. Queen, they were known for, you know, like spot on renditions of all these songs. Great musicians and everything, um, but not a whole lot of like writing going on, I wouldn't say. And like a kind of like, you know, new music coming out and stuff. It was this cover band circuit. But really, really good cover bands. So that had some role in sort of my development as a, uh, like what I do now as a, you know, when I tour as a sideman and stuff like that, because I, I, I learned that it was important, at least in that world, to know how to learn songs by other artists and copy parts really accurately and tones and things like that. Growing up and seeing that, it was like I was kind of into that, like, how did that, you know, how did Alex Tyson get that sound on, like, whatever, you know, like, uh, certain guitar tones, and that was, that was, like, a fascinating thing to me, and I guess that's worked well for me in the sort of niche that I'm in in the music business. <clears throat> that's it, pretty much, that was what the scene was like. Your uh, friend, uh, Steve Stevens, I heard an interview with him in which he said, uh, I believe he was part of a pretty successful cover band himself, and he talked about about what a great education it was in terms of not only honing your your chops and and performing and and just getting better as a as a performer and as a musician, but also in terms of analyzing and learning what made good songs great. Basically, just learning what made a good song a good song. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like you learn, yeah, how to put songs together for sure, and and how as a guitarist, maybe how you know tones work within a song and how to how to build it from one section to the next and stuff and sort of add contrast by using different guitar tones and all those things for sure. By studying other people's music, you'll learn that. Can you pinpoint the moment when you decided that you wanted to take a shot at making a career in music? Uh, yeah. Um, so I was, uh, I, I actually can pinpoint that moment. I was 14 and, um, I was home from school. I had ordered away for the MI catalog, Musicians Institute. Uh-huh. I wanted to go to GIT. A lot of my heroes had gone there, and actually, my guitar teacher in Edmonton had attended there. So I was home from lunch. Uh, I was home for lunch from uh, from uh, junior high school, I guess, one day, reading the MI catalog at the at the at the table, you know, and saying like, "I'm gonna go to this school. That's what I'm gonna do." And I just decided like then. <laughs> <laughs> I clearly remember that, and t- you know, telling my mother like, uh, "This is what I want to do. I want to do this. Like when I'm old enough, I'm going to go to this school." And she was like, "Well, that's what you really want to do, you know." And uh, that's what I did. So f- fast forward a few a few years, you moved to LA in in 1990 precisely to attend MI. Having grown up so far from from LA and from that world, uh, what was that like? How did you feel when you first arrived? I was ex- really excited. Um, I was ready for it. I'd traveled a lot as a kid because uh, I was lucky enough, really fortunate to have parents that kind of, you know, that took us on some fun trips and stuff and uh, me and my sister. And, and so I'd, I'd been around and, you know, it wasn't completely foreign to me to be not at home. Uh, but, you know, it was an experience. I, I'd had a car for a few years already. I had a car when I was 16 
And my parents sort of didn't want me to take my car away when I moved. They were, I don't know why, they were like freaked out about me, you know, having a car and driving in L.A. But they didn't realize like how difficult that is. You kind of need a car in L.A. It's better now than it used to be. But back then, there's a bit more like, you know, public transit options now. But back then, it was tough. So, you know, here I am, like, going to MI. I got an apartment that was maybe three miles away, and I had to take the bus uh, to get to my apartment. Mm-hmm. So, that, you know, standing on Hollywood Boulevard at, like, 9 p.m., because sometimes I'd stay late at school and, like, work on things and stuff. And standing on Hollywood Boulevard at the bus stop at 9 p.m., you know, there I was 19 years old. I don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> think maybe they foresaw that that's what I was going to be doing either. Maybe that wasn't a good idea. You know, leave me with no vehicle in L.A., uh, I digress. But anyway, yeah, it was uh, it was uh, eye opening. You know, I mean, I saw all kinds of crazy big city, and you know, maybe not the safest city in the world. And so, you know, you had to. I, did, I guess I developed some street smarts and all that, just being in LA and figuring out where you should be and where you shouldn't, neighborhood wise and whatnot. And it was an experience for sure. A lot of fun. <laughs> I believe you attended for for one year. Uh, looking back, what do you think? Where uh, what did you get out of that one year there? What do you what do you value the most from that one year at MI? Oh man, I mean, it was a really good experience for me. Um, it just reminded me. I got an email the other day from my a fellow that was my private instructor at MI. So everybody had a guitar teacher that was assigned to them, and you, you kind of had a half an hour lesson with them once a week, and they would just go over the curriculum with you and make sure that you were on track and that everything was cool. But my, my private instructor, he was a fantastic guitar player. He now does a lot of uh, uh, music for television and stuff like that. His name is Nick Nolan. He just sent me an email the other day. And he just reminded me, I've got to email him back because we're going to have lunch. It's like all these years later, 25 years later. But uh, anyway, Nick, such a great guitar player and big influence um, just because he was like a lot of practical advice. Yeah, I, I was always ex- kind of very obsessed with getting things perfect and playing things really accurately and stuff. And he would see me play in sort of these live performance workshop situations at MI that he would do and uh, and would offer me advice about like, hey, maybe you don't need to worry so much about getting everything so perfect. Maybe you need to be like, you know, like lose 15 or 20 percent of that and just have a little more attitude mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of thing like play out a little more and you know take chances and so i remember getting that out of it which was cool it was like some practical advice that wasn't just you know about learning like music theory and and you know lots of licks and improving my technique and stuff there was some practical uh sort of gaining advice that i got out of being at mi a little bit of like a crash course and that kind of stuff and and that was really cool. Uh, and beyond that, it, probably what I got the most out of it was just seeing players like uh, I mean I remember the orientation week. I saw Michael Hedges and you know some incredible guitar players. And I just like my level of my awareness of what it meant to be a really good guitar player just like kind of went through the roof. Like I was like, whoa! Like this is like really next level from what I'd experienced maybe in Canada and. and uh, not that there's not great musicians there, there is, but you know, when you see these people like in every, you know, in LA on a, on a daily basis, it was like, I was seeing stuff that was just blowing my mind. It, it, you know, inspires you to, uh, to up your own game, I guess. Had you arrived, uh, pretty confident in your, in your skill set? Yeah, I was pretty confident. Um, I was pretty confident. I remember like going for a tour of the school, and uh, like about six months before I actually moved to attend the school. So I was seriously like, pre- I was pretty sure I was going to go, but my family had come down on vacation in California. And while we were here, <clears throat> this was like, um, I guess, December of, uh, of 89. We went for a tour of MI. And uh, so a nice girl was giving us a tour around the school. And when we got to the end of it, she said, so what's your name again? And I said, oh, it's Peter Thorne. And I had, I had sent in an audition. You had to send an audition tape, like a cassette tape back then. It's just like a sample of your playing so they could hear you as along with like the application to, to get into the school. And she's like, oh, she's like, I reviewed your application this morning. I listened to your tape. Like, you're great. I love your, you know, and she was like very complimentary and stuff. So I was like, oh, that's a good thing. I guess I'm off to a good start. So, yeah, I was like, like I was fairly confident getting into the school. Not, not, you know, not in a cocky way or anything, but I knew that I could play. And, you know, I was just crazy about it. It's all I did. I just lived and breathed guitar at that point for, it had already been for, uh, you know, geez, nine years, I guess, or something like that that I've been playing. So, After uh, attending MI, 
I believe you worked with your friend uh, Frank Symes, yeah. writing and re- and recording um, you know several dozen songs. I get the impression that this period of time was was highly formative for you. What did you learn working with Frank? I learned so much with Frank because once again, Frank was a huge influence and was one of these people that helped me up my game and and lifted my sort of <clears throat> the bar, so to speak, as what it is to be a professional musician. Um, I, I'll tell you a little story about like, so I, I basically found out about Frank and, and his, the band that he was putting together through a, a musician's referral service at MI. So he called in and said, I'm looking for a you know, young guitar player to, to join an original project that I'm putting together. So I went over to meet him at his studio and uh, which was like, a, like his home studio. And, and we kind of hit it off. And he was like mid thirties and I was 19 or 20, I guess. And, uh, and, and he liked my vibe. And I, so I, I went and did an audition at a rehearsal studio and they really dug my playing. And so he said, okay, we want you to do this. And I was like, great. He gave me a call like the next day or something. He said, can you stop down? I've got a rehearsal today. I'm rehearsing at third encore studios. And he was playing with Don Henley at the time, which he did for a number of years. He was Don's MD musical director. And, uh, so I, I said, sure, I'll come by. So he wanted me to stop by and pick up this cassette tape of songs that he'd been working on for the band and so that I could learn the, learn the songs. So I went over and uh, stopped by the studio and I met him outside the studio and he said, come on in and just sit down for a second. We're going to play and uh, you can watch for a few minutes and then I'll give you this tape and we'll talk. And so I walked in the room and it was, you know, it was a Don Henley rehearsal and I was like 19 or 20, whatever it was. It was like, wow, really something you know and uh, and it was a don was rehearsing for a walden woods benefit show i think and i remember um roger waters being there wow and uh yeah and they played comfortably numb <laughs> you know and in the rehearsal studio that i was like wow i think i found myself in the right room you know <laughs> like this is incredible <laughs> so i was you know instantly i was like wow oh, this is a really like amazing situation i found myself in so just being around that and seeing how Frank played and um, what it took to sort of be in that, at that level, uh, you know, you just sort of soak it up, like just through watching. So the, a lot of, I got a lot of things from Frank. I mean, a lot of technical experience and knowledge about engineering and recording music. Also a lot of songwriting because he, he, you know, was an experienced songwriter. And so I learned a lot through writing with him and whatnot about how to write a good song. And uh, he's a, a really wonderful guitar player that, we used to go to cover gigs actually sometimes we play in like Pasadena or Arcadia or these towns outside of just sort of LA proper. And, uh, uh, you know, we were, so we were like an original band, but then we go play cover gigs for a little bit of money on the side and just for fun. Mm-hmm. And you think to yourself, okay, here's this guy, he's playing at the, you know, the top artists in the world. And yet he's totally cool with going to do cover gigs and lo- little local gigs and like sort of, you know, humping a PA in and stuff and amps and setting up and playing some Rolling Stone songs or whatever. Incidentally, he was playing with Mick Jagger at the time. He did the Wandering <laughs> Spirit solo album. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, it, and his attitude, the thing that, that really struck me was his attitude and his playing style and his enthusiasm never change. You know, if he was doing a, a, a arena gig, uh, you know, for 20,000 people and playing with, you know, like I said, Henley or, or uh, you know, Mick Jagger or something like that. Uh, he would play the same if we were playing in a bar for 10 people. And those 10 people that would maybe be in the back of the bar, when we would set up and play, and he'd play, and he'd play some guitar solo, we'd do some Hendrix or something, they would, by the end of the set, they would be at the front of the stage just going, (laughs) yeah, you know, like freaking out. He would win over the people in the room, no matter how few there were, and he always played the same way with all this uh, uh, just this joy and, and, uh, you know, and like healthy ego. He had like a, you know, like check me out kind of like, I'm going to blow your mind with some, some guitar playing right now and that kind of thing, you know? And, and so I learned a lot from that, like never phone it in and always play for the right reason and never just kind of, you know, that kind of thing, kind of, uh, invaluable experience. Like I can't thank him enough for, uh, for, for that. Uh, it was, it was great to see, you know? You got a record deal in Japan with, uh, I, th- I think it was with that band, with the Surreal McCoys in 96. Yeah. Do you remember how you felt when you got that deal? Was there a, was there a sense of, uh, gosh, yeah, I made it, this is it? How did you feel? <laughs> I, I do remember. Um, well, I remember, so getting the deal was uh, a huge pivotal thing for me because 
I was actually a little disillusioned with LA. I was working a day job. I was, I was going to actually relocate back to Canada uh, at one point and I'd given up my, my apartment here and uh, decided to move and I had a place set up in Vancouver. I mean, I was very close to actually leaving. I mean, about as close as you can get. I was going to go in, 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 in a few weeks back to, to Canada. And I kind of lo- was looking forward to it because LA was, it was you know, like it, it can take its toll on you when you just work a day job all the time. Maybe you've been working on the same band for five years and uh, that kind of thing. So uh, Frank called me one day. I'll, t- I'll tell you how the Japanese thing came about. Um, Frank actually grew up in Japan. His father was from America and his mother's Japanese. And so he spoke fluent Japanese and he'd learned it at such a young age as well as English uh, that uh, he had no discernible accent in either language. So he could, he could speak perfect Japanese and perfect English. Yeah. Uh, so there was a Japanese businessman that had approached him and said, Hey, you know, you should translate a few of your songs into Japanese. And if you can't get a deal in the States for whatever reason, if it doesn't happen, maybe I can get you a Japanese record deal. And so he did that, you know, sang three of the three of our original songs in Japanese. And this was, this had been a year and a half earlier, like prior to us getting a deal. And uh, so long story short, the band kind of splits up eventually. And we're not really playing. We haven't really been active for about six months. And I'm going to move back to Canada, like I say. And uh, Frank calls me one day at work and he says, hey, I think we got a record deal. <laughs> and I was like, what? Like we haven't even been playing or trying or showcasing or doing it. You know, we did numerous record company showcases in the States and came really close at one point to signing with A&M and, and just none of it had panned out. So I was like, what do you mean? He said that Japanese thing. He said that guy, I think he got us a record deal on a, on a Sony label over in Japan. So I was like very excited, of course. So I, I had to find a way to stay in L.A. I'd given up my apartment. I was planning on moving to Canada, but literally that kept me, you know, in L.A. I found a new place to live and stuck it out and just, just okay, this is great, you know. And so uh, about a year passed from that point until we actually, you know, had the deal inked. I mean, pretty pretty soon after that moment, we went to Japan and actually, you know, met with the label and whatnot, which was fascinating for me because I was still really young and. I was like, you know, one week I was I had nothing going on, and the next week I sat there in some office at Sony with the guy through a translator saying, "We think your band is going to be the future of Japanese music." <laughs> you know, this kind of stuff. I was like, "What is happening? This is crazy." So it was a really cool experience. But I, I'll tell you what, I do remember the moment where we had some money that was coming to us. So it was a budget for our album because we self-produced the album. They liked our demo so much. They said, "You guys go ahead and make the record yourselves." So they sent us the advance uh, to our bank account in L.A. And we'd set up this bank account. And I remember I was calling the bank every day. And it was like one of those things where it was like, uh, you know, your account has 37 cents. And your account has 37 cents. <laughs> like every day, you know, the auto- automated message. And uh, I, I, was, I was home one day. And uh, my, my boss at the time for the, uh, the job that I had was actually my roommate as well. So I remember he was home. And I called the bank. And I said, you know, your, I think they wired half of the advance or something, and it said, you know, your account has a balance of $117,000 wow. <laughs> And I, I looked at him and I said, I quit! Because <laughs> he was my boss, you know, and he just laughed. I was like jumping up and down going, yes, you know. So yeah, I had that moment of like, I made it, or whatever, you know, yeah. brief, fleeting, but you know, it was, it was actually a great experience. That was my first uh, experience that got me uh, into, I, I suppose, the world of being a officially a professional musician. So, you know, I was, finally didn't have to work a day job anymore. So, I believe the label the label folded after about a year. How did you feel at that point? Uh, I was I was bummed out. You know, it didn't like we made the record and that was a good experience, and we all made a little money and you know kept kept some of the money. And, you know, I had these dreams of like I, I went to Japan first of all. That was the beginning of my my love affair with Japan because I. I crazy about that place I could, I could live there and be happy so i was really excited about it like i say we'd gone there and i experienced it and i was like wow this could be great we'd go there and tour and maybe i can have this whole like career in japan and you know when it didn't really go beyond making the record one on didn't really pan out as most bands you know that's, that's how it usually is i mean getting a record deal as you know you, you find out most most bands you know it's that's just the beginning so uh, it doesn't doesn't mean there's going to be a, a career beyond that. So yeah, I was a little disillusioned. It was um, it was tough, but it, it wasn't too long until I had other things going on. I mean, 
that was 96 and by 97 i joined another band that had a deal in the states it was a band called sparkler and they had a deal on revolution records which was like a spinoff of giant records uh, i don't know if you remember those labels but anyway so you know i just kind of moved on and and started you know finding other things to do in la and whatnot and frank and i remain friends and whatnot still are to this day and have a good relationship and it's just you know you learn i, I i've given the, the, the advice to a number of young musicians it's like any one band is not you you know your band does not equal you it's like if it doesn't work out you just you know go on to the next thing keep going and you know chalk it up as a learning experience and it's cool you went on to tour with uh, some smaller acts at first and later on some huge acts chris cornell melissa etheridge don henley uh, i'm sure you had a ton of thrilling moments uh, but at what point, if any, did it begin to wear on you, the grind of being on the road? Well, when you're doing the small tours with the with the kind of what, what we call baby bands, like where it's like, you know, you're a young band on a label and uh, you're maybe touring in a van and trailer and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, staying at cheap motels or sometimes having a, you know, that that kind of thing. That that wears on you pretty soon, I find. Like, And if you're doing that well into your 30s or something, it's like, uh, you know, it's a bit of a grind. You know, it's just, it's just, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, especially at the beginning. It's great, but it's mixed with, you know, you getting a, I remember one stretch in particular <coughs> doing a tour with, uh, was in this band called 40 foot echo, which is a great rock band. I mean, a really cool record with those guys like back around 2002. And I remember doing one stretch where we did seven gigs in a row with no days off. And it was a, a Western Canadian tour that then swung down into the States. So we actually started in my hometown in Edmonton. And then I remember doing Edmonton and Calgary, and that's no big deal because they're only a couple hours apart. But then Regina after that, and that is like a seven or seven and a half hour drive, I think. Yeah, was it wintertime? I think it might have. It was cold. And I remember like doing that drive. And uh, and then from there to Winnipeg, which is another that's a solid like eight or nine hour drive. And the next day was down in Minnesota. So we had to cross the border it was about an eight hour drive where we were going there. So it was like seven hours, eight hours, eight hours. And with gigs playing every night, you know, by the time we got to about Minnesota, I remember like just feeling like kind of crazy, you know? <laughs> and and then it continued on. We did like three or four more dates after that. And when we got done with that seven days, I was like, man, that's like kind of gnarly. So yeah, it's just that that kind of travel really wears on you. So how you tour is so crucial. Like, uh, you know, as soon as you can get on a tour bus, and, you know, have some proper hotel rooms and stuff. So that equation just changes, you know. You get proper rest. I sleep well on a bus. And then it's, it, it becomes actually quite easy, I find, at that point. You're going to do a routine, daily routine. And uh, no two tours are the same, I find, you know, whatever that routine is. But say with Melissa Etheridge, you know, the, the standard thing would be to play the show, get on the bus around 11.30 or midnight, and the bus rolls overnight. We'd get to the next town, we'd have hotel rooms, you know, and they would space the tour. And if, if, if the tour is routed properly with only a few hours or some, sometimes maybe seven hours between gigs driving or something, but, <clears throat> you know, you sleep a few hours on the bus or up to maybe, you know, six or seven hours or something, then get into your hotel at, you know, anywhere from three to 7 a.m. or something. You do this thing where you try and not wake up. You sort of like get your bag and go on autopilot into your room and get back at bed and, and sleep the rest of the you know, maybe till 10 a.m. or something in the hotel room and then get up and go to sound check and, and, and do it all over again. And that's like a routine daily. It's not hard, you know, it's a kind of nice lifestyle and a lot of fun. She had, she had great catering on the road too, cause she's very nice. health conscious. So it was, we had, you know, a terrific chef making us food every day and stuff. So like I say, no two tours are the same, but you get in these situations where that's, that's not difficult. You know, it's, it's, you're playing music every night and it's somebody making you nice food every day. Right. <laughs> you, know, you know, hanging out with your friends on a bus and like watching movies, and like whatever. It's like, it's a nice lifestyle. Uh, other, other than of course, the fact that you're away from your friends and family a lot. And that, that's always difficult for anybody. I think. Do you think you've reached a good balance now between spending time at home and being on the road? Well, that's a really good question. Um, like I say, it's not, uh, I, you know, I, I would like to, uh, to have a family and have kids and stuff, but I don't have that right now. Uh, and you know, that's something that's like, okay, well, is that a result of my lifestyle and, and the work that I do? Uh, but I've got friends that have done it. So, 
you know, they have kids and, and families and they tour and that's what they do. And so I know it's, it's absolutely possible, it, it, but it's not an easy thing to do. I would right. say, you know, meeting, meeting the, the right person that's going to be with you throughout, you know, if you've got a music career, it's, you, you've got crazy hours and you have to travel and that's just how it is. So it's, it's maybe challenging, you know, I guess in that sense. You're very well known for your gear demos. When you first started doing this, did you think, did you ever think it would get as big as it has? No, I had no idea. I would have made a better name for my YouTube channel. <laughs> <I knew. laughs> so I've got this cryptic kind of acronym for my, my YouTube name. I had no idea, really. I, I, no clue, you know. And now it's become this thing. I, I love guitar gear so much and talking about it. And, you know, I'm just a guitar geek. So it's like, that's natural. I also have taught a lot. Like when I was 16 or 17 years old, I was a, a guitar teacher, taught like 35 students a week. And this was before going to California. And so I felt like I, I feel like I have a good uh, sort of grasp on how to explain things and For sure. very simply in a clear sort of fashion. Uh, and I also work in music stores. So talking about gear and sort of demonstrating it and stuff was, was another, like it's like another skill set or something that I developed uh, just through experience. So I guess it kind of makes sense. Like I, you know, I love guitar, I love music, I love talking about it. And I feel like I know how to explain things in, in a fairly clear cut, concise way. So I guess it, it's just putting that all together in the video thing. Uh, it's, it's been kind of like a uh, sort of a happy accident, but maybe just like a natural thing that just sort of developed over time. You know, but yeah, who knew that YouTube was going to be like the primary, like, I mean, you know, it seems like that's how kids listen to music these days or discover things. And, you know, it's like, it's such a vehicle for so many different things at this point. For sure. For sure. Um, and in addition to the incredible production quality of your demos, like you said, you, you explain things very clearly. And I think that's just as important a reason as to why, why they're so popular. Um, you're also very personable. You come across as a laid back a uh, confident guy. Would you say you've always had these qualities uh, growing up or is it something that you uh, over time developed being in the industry that you're in? Well, I'm Canadian, so they all, you know, <laughs> we're, 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 we're like nice to a fault, I guess. <laughs> we're always apologizing. We say sorry for everything. You know, if you run into me and bump into me on the street, I'll be the one apologizing, <laughs> you know, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's like a combination of things like developing a bit of a sort of, I guess, an on-camera personality or something. Right. That's definitely something I've had to work on over time. If you watch my early videos, like, I can watch that and I'll almost cringe. Uh, you know, it's it's something that, you, yeah, for sure you develop over time. What I've learned is that being kind of more of an extrovert or cracking jokes or, you know, not being so worried about being perfect yeah. uh, is, is important. People want to see you have some personality and be a little bit, like, you know, real. Right. Not, too, uh, not too guarded. And, and for some reason... You know, I just think as humans, we're just drawn to that. So it's a combination of like with the videos, you want to keep them to a reasonable length and keep your explanations concise and not like sort of ramble on too much. Maybe like I am in this interview. <laughs> no, not at <laughs> Rambling. all. I could, I could tend to ramble. So sometimes I like I'll, I'll watch, uh, you know, things that I've done. I was like, oh, man, I can get trimmed that down. I'll do it again. <laughs> like, you know, it's going on too long. I'm like, I need to be more concise and just get to the point or else people are going to get bored. So becoming aware of things like that. Um, and just sort of when it, when the time comes being able to turn on that personality and being sort of on point when it comes to talking on camera and stuff, I guess that's just stuff that you develop through doing. I want to touch on something that's fascinating to me. Uh, for full disclosure, I, I play guitar and as many, <laughs> if not all guitar players have at many times been obsessed with anything from picks to strings to cables to tubes to you name it everything right and sure. and i'm fascinated by the degree to which each variable can or cannot make a difference and affect the overall sound and i've talked to a few of my guests about this and i've asked variations of the following question when an artist is recording in particular recording something and spending countless hours tweaking the position of a mic using the right preamp and just really crafting the perfect, perfect sound for something. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, is it something that the audience will be able to hear? Will they be able to hear the difference? Or at the end of the day, is it is it more so for you, so the artist, the performer, so that you can perform a certain way and the audience responds to that performance and not necessarily to the sound and the soundscape that you crafted? Well, I think it's both. 
you know, that'd be my answer for sure. I mean, it's both. Um, you know, people respond to sound and sonics no matter. Like, I think a, you know, non-guitar players can appreciate a good guitar tone, or or you know, non-drummers can appreciate like how cool like the intro to when the levee breaks or something sounds. You know what I mean? Right. Like that just has an emotional impact on you. Sonics. So you're you're doing it for your audience for sure, but you're also doing it for inspiration for yourself, which is it's a cyclical thing. Like it, you know, it it, it all leads into you being inspired. Uh, to to perform and to play something, so yeah, it's 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 both really, don't you think? I mean, I think so. Yeah, I think so. And uh, Mike Campbell was uh, from the Heartbreakers was on the show uh, a few weeks ago, and I asked him a version of that question, and he he shared a great story, which uh, I forget which album it was, but the Heartbreakers were working on an album and kind of getting caught up with with capturing the right vibe and the right performance and getting the right sound. And they had a, a yeah. gentleman sitting in on bass for that particular song, and he basically said something to the effect of, I've never heard a bunch of guys play well and sound bad. Basically alluding to the fact that if you were playing a good song and you knew what you were doing, that was really 90% of the battle. And thereafter, it, you know, it, was, it was the gravy on top. And, uh, and then Mike went on to, to elaborate on how if you have a great song that you owe it to yourself – and you owe it to the audience and you owe it to everyone to give it your very best shot because otherwise if it was a great song and you didn't quite go all the way, you will, you're always going to second guess it because you know you could have done better. Yeah, I think that that's all true. Well, I'll give you an example of what I think about the Sonics and how it can affect maybe the overall, maybe the, maybe the entire you know sort of trajectory of a band. Um, let's take Van Halen, for example, with the, the everybody's, uh, at this point, if they're a fan, they've probably heard the Gene Simmons demos, um, early early Gene Simmons demos that were done of, uh, uh, I think it was like, you know, just before they signed the Warner Brothers. They're cool, you know, but they don't sound like Van Halen 1. And a lot of it has to do with the Sonics and sort of the production. And, you know, Eddie probably, you know, playing a little outside of his, his what was his comfort zone at the time, which was, you know, I think he liked to perform like they were playing live. He liked to play everything on one track, rip into the solo, and he didn't care if there was rhythm guitar. And and that became like a big part of, uh, you know, the the sort of the sonic stamp of that band. Whereas the Gene Simmons demos, they have sort of a, they sound okay, but they're like a bit more of a generic 70s rock quality to them. Right. Right? And you don't hear that signature Eddie thing, that tone. I mean, his playing's there and everything, but it's like different somehow. And so when he was allowed to just do his thing, and and just be you know unabashedly himself tonally and also that you know play like he wanted to be able to play which was you know just do it all on one track live take it was magic right you just never know like that the Mike Campbell thing's interesting because it's like what if what if it had just just been the the Gene Simmons demo and they got a deal off that and that was the way that Van Halen worked from then on we don't know like what would have happened you know it's just intent it's just intangible it's like. All you can do is your best, I guess. And if you feel like something's lacking, I remember working for like Linda Perry and, you know, doing some tracks with her with different artists we'd be recording with, uh, we're making records and stuff. And she had this great sort of awareness of the overall sound or vibe of an album and an artist and what her and the artist were trying to achieve. And so sometimes we do a take and get a good take or, you know, we'd be struggling a little bit, maybe sometimes, but do a bunch of takes and then finally get to one. Then we'd all go home that day and then come back to the studio the next day. And she's like, guys, we're starting over. We don't have that. And you might be like, what? Like, I thought we got a great take at the end of the night. She'd be like, no. And it could be like whatever we'd done sonically wasn't in the vibe of the rest of the record. Right. Or she just felt like we hadn't achieved it. You know, she had this great sort of awareness of the whole project, what the album should sound like at the end and whether or not each track was fitting into that vision. Right. You know, and and that's like a real like you know being a record producer is a it's an interesting thing you know having that overall big picture sort of uh, view I, I learned a lot from from her in that regard and so I guess that's what I'm getting at is like you have to kind of it's 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 art so it's all subjective but like you know whether or not it's meeting its full potential I guess do you you know do you feel that it is you know when you're producing something. It's kind of an intangible. <laughs> For sure. Uh, let's talk about your, your music. 
Uh, can you walk me through your songwriting process, if there is a process, or or in a, if it happens in a variety of ways? Well, I get inspired by many different things. Um, sometimes it's drum grooves, or sometimes it's you know like certain grooves or rhythms or something. And I'll be like, "Ooh, that's cool!" I haven't like written something to that. And you'll sit down, pick up a guitar, and like start writing to a some kind of groove that's something that's maybe like outside of your comfort zone or. Uh, so that's, so that's always inspiring or, um, sometimes it's sonic, you know, many, many pedal demos I do and stuff. My sort of signature thing has become, I write an original song for every single one, which is incredible. So, Oh, thanks. Well, it's, it's not really that hard for me. I mean, it's like I plug in the pedal, whatever it is, and they've such great stuff these days that, you know, I just try and get inspired by the gear, whatever it is. That's my angle. I just plug it in and like, to look for a strong suit, whatever that is, and then go, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And I'll find a certain riff or part or, or something that kind of, that, that kind of works, you know? And, uh, and, and I just go from there and just keep writing the, the, the little song, you know, they all end up sort of being like little demos, I guess. Do you ever co-write any of your solo material or is it all yours? Good question. There's no co-writes on, uh, on my solo album. Um, I mean, I love co-writing, but it's always been in sort of more vocal projects. Yeah. I guess not for the instrumental thing. I mean, I'd love to, you know, I talked to uh, Steve Stevens once a while ago. I was like, we should do a track together, yeah. you know, like do something like this, just let's just write something together. And he, he kind of seemed to dig on that idea, but then we never, we never did it, but maybe, maybe we will, you know, it's just, you know, it's always like pinning down different people's schedules and stuff, but I would love to do that. Speaking of vocals, do you sing? Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm not like a born singer or anything like that, but I do. I mean, like, Last night, I was singing a lot, <laughs> or as much as I could, you know. Have you ever toyed with the idea of, of singing on your own material? Uh, yeah, I've sung some songs before. I've got some stuff that I've never really shared with people, but there's, there's, there's tracks that I've done that I've sung on. Uh, my thing is that I don't really consider myself a lyricist. Like, right. I, I like working with, with lyricists and with vocalists and like helping out on lyrics. And like when they're, when they're stuck on a line or something, I love doing that, like kind of collaborating on things like that. But writing lyrics is like, it's just never really been my thing. I love music and melodies and stuff, but I'm not really like the singer-songwriter guy. It's just not my, not my thing. Although I have done it and it's fun to do and I have a few tunes that maybe I'll share one of these days. It seems like maybe that, that could be a great way to collaborate with someone to write the lyrics. But then again, it might be strange to be writing, playing your own music but singing someone else's lyrics. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm just not really like, uh, I enjoy singing, but it's like, I don't know. I'm not like in love with my voice or anything like that. It seems like that's such a common trait though for, for guitar players. Uh, I'm thinking of Jimi Hendrix, right? Who hated his, the sound of his voice. Stevie Ray Vaughan, who hated singing. And, and to all of us, yeah, I mean, we, they're primarily known as guitar players, but their voices were, you know, complimented. They're playing really well. But I, I seem to find a pattern there. Even Matt Schofield, who was on the show, talks about how he's pretty happy with, with his guitar playing. But when it comes to singing and, and lyric writing, that's where he feels like he's 10 years behind his guitar playing. Well, you know, think about some of the guys that I work with, right? There's an element of like, you know, playing with Don Henley, you know, when he looks at you and says <laughs> in an audition, you know. So when he looks at you and says, do you sing? And, um, you know, like my younger self, when I first met Don and auditioned for his band back in 2000, frozen for a minute, like you're an eagle, you know, like I don't <laughs> sing compared to you, if that's what you mean. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, like, but you can't think like that, right? Because it's just like, that's just being young and not confident in a certain area. You got to learn how to go, yeah, I sing, you know, and then you do all of a sudden, you sort of act as if until, even if you're not, I, I think you're right, like Hendrix was famously, uh, not really stoked on his own voice. And yet to us, it's just like an extension. I loved his voice. I mean, right. Extension of his instrument, you know, uh, I love the story, but I, I don't know if this is true, but I heard that the first song he ever really wrote stone three, like you need to write your own material, you know? And he's like, okay, how about this? Right. <laughs> like, <stone free. laughs> it's like, wow, cool. Uh, but, um, yeah, you know, I, I guess, it, you know, the, the thing is getting maybe comfortable with the fact that it doesn't really matter. Like when we think about some of the, what we consider as some of the greatest songwriters in, in, in history, and you know, think about the voices of you know, Bob Dylan or, you know, different people that aren't necessarily technically great singers, but they convey something. That's all that really matters. Right. But there is that thing where, you know, I'm playing with Chris Cornell, you know, and it's like I'm singing Hunger Strike with him last night. And it's like, you know, you don't want to suck. It's like, <laughs> you know, you got to. Like, but it's it's the thing that I'm not, you know, I play the guitar and I'm comfortable playing guitar singing. It's like, 
I need to really think about it because I'm not that guy that can just naturally, you know, if I don't think about it, it's all over the map. Right, you know, right. My voice, really, I have to, okay, take, take a breath now. All right, lean into <laughs> it. No, diaphragm, hold that. Are you in tune? Like all that crap is going through my head while I'm like, so it'd be nice to, to move beyond that. But I just do my, I really focus really when I'm trying to sing a part with a guy like that and harmonize, it's like, requires a lot of concentration for me. Right. I mentioned earlier that uh, you're very personable and uh, you've written articles in which you stress the importance of people skills to make it as a working yeah. musician. Uh, Philip Sace, a fellow Canadian, uh, was on the show a couple of weeks ago and I asked him if being as nice as he is has helped his career. And he had an interesting answer. He said that many times people confuse kindness for weakness and that he's mm -hmm. had a number of uh, unfortunate uh, situations in which he's th that has happened to him. Have you ever run into something like this? That's an interesting perspective. I mean, I, I you know, Philip's uh, uh, he's a solo artist in his own right. Whereas you know, I am too. I've got a record out, but he tours and actually does done a lot of you know. He's gone down further down that road than I have in his career, and I can imagine that it's probably difficult for him at times when he's trying to do things like you know negotiate deals with you know you know promoters or like whatever he's going to like kind of live in that world especially in the blues world I, I i'm only guessing i'm only guessing i can't speak for philip but i would guess that that's where you really run into some my career thus far has been yeah you know we're all independent contractors essentially and it's like when you're a side guy you're constantly negotiating for you know whatever there's not like some union that's out there helping us out uh you know if you get a gig eventually management's hitting you up and saying so this is what we're offering for salary and you know, this is what we're offering for per diem and it's going to be like this. And you have to come back and say, well, I can only go out for this much and I might need this for per diem and whatever. I want business class flights or something like that. And they'll come back and say, sorry. And you know, it's a negotiation. And if, if they sense the, the business people are there to make money and they're there to help their artists make money, you know, and if it's a label, they want the label to make money and you to make less money then you know, it's just always that way. So, yeah, for somebody like Philip, like out there, he's having to probably deal with that a lot more than than I have, and I would I would guess that you know, people will will take from you whatever they can. You know, they'll they'll get away with whatever they can. They're in the business to make money, and it's not. You know, I heard my friends once say, "It's not show friends, it's show business." Right, right, right. <laughs> he had a, he shared you know a similar I mean? quote. Yeah, and it's like it's a balancing act. You know, it's just, and and once you realize it's just business, that. You know, not to take it personally when people are trying to rake you over the coals for trying to, you know, get every last dollar. <laughs> it's it, once you realize it's just business and it's the norm, it sort of takes the uh, the edge off or something, and you just sort of deal with it. It becomes more like a game at that point. It's just like to be expected, you know. You've uh, also stressed the importance of being able to to be an extrovert and perform on stage. Mm -hmm. Did this always come easily to you, or do you feel like it's something that uh, that you've gotten better at doing over time? I've totally gotten better at it, even in the last five years. Um, I mean, playing with Chiyoshi Negabuchi right. in Japan was a that was a definite. You know, I got a lot of practice and just all right, turn it on and go. <laughs> you know, because it was. He wants you to do it and he expects you to go like, it's, it's crazy that gig as far as when it comes to that level of uh, the performance and, you know, literally I, I'll put it this way on the first tour I did with them, uh, we played a song called Nike Chimpera first. And, um, uh, you know, right after the second chorus, there's a guitar solo. We're doing these arena shows and he screams guitar and you run to the end of this ego ramp, you know, halfway out into the audience <laughs> playing a guitar solo. And this is like, you know, the first song of the set and you get out there and you're out there playing this ripping harmony solo with uh, Ichiro, another guitar, guitar cohort in that band and back to back solo, you know, in an arena and you just go for it. Like, it's like, you've got to just do it. You know, you might fall flat on your face, literally running down this ramp, but he'd rather see you fall flat on your face <laughs> than not try. Right. And that's, that's what you learn, you know, that it's like the going for it and the audience is there to see a performance. They want to see something special and it's, it's it's a lot of fun if you just get past the well, what if I make a mistake, you know? It's like, no, just go. Do something you know. I was just talking about this with somebody this morning actually. Um I I got a lot of uh inspiration from uh, uh certain people that I see as sort of fearless performers, Jack White is one of them. Yeah. 
And I love in the movie, it might get loud where he talks about, he's talking about performing and he's saying like something like, you know, if I got to get from my, he's maybe playing guitar and then he should jump over to the piano and play piano or something like that. And he's like, if it's going to take me two seconds to get from my vocal mic to the piano. And I know that in a certain song, I'll move the piano a foot further away to make it harder (laughs) on myself. You know, and I got a lot from that. Like he's, he's, you know, he's, he lives on that edge all the time. And you see that guy perform and, and he's got something special where he goes for it. He's it's like a fearless thing. Right. And um, that's really cool. You know, that's what, that's what people want to see when they come to a show. They want to be, you know, want to see something exciting. And so I, I love that. So it's something I've definitely learned uh, and incorporated more into my own yeah, playing with Chris last night at this, you know, this special private gig we did at the Roxy. It was so much fun. And I realized cause it's been five years since I played with them, but I realized that I've gotten a lot further down that road since I played with him before. He really likes to live on the edge. He likes taking chances. He loves it when you go for it and it doesn't matter if there's mistakes and doesn't, you know, and so I, we had such a wonderful gig last night. It was so much fun. And there was a lot of that, like taking chances uh, we didn't rehearse a lot for this gig or anything like that, but the whole band was just like, you know, you're just on your toes and going for it. And it's, it's magic when it's like that. You constantly get asked for advice on how to make it as a musician. And I know you've written about yeah. it uh, quite a bit. If you were starting out today, if you were 18 years old in, in 2016, what do you think you'd do differently from the way that you actually did things? Mm, that's a good question. Like, I don't really understand the music business anymore. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't understand what it's like to be a young band, uh, you know, with the way that labels are these days and the way that people are, you know, listening to music and whatnot. I don't know what that would look like. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, it's sure. so different. It's so different. I don't really understand it, honestly. Like, what, what does it mean to be 18? And, like, you're like, okay, now we're going to do what? Like, how is our band going to get anywhere? I don't really understand. I think it's probably, what's, uh, I'm sorry, I'm ignorant of this guy's name, how you say it, but Ed Sheeran, is that who you say his name? Ed Sheeran, I think, yeah, yeah, I know. Sheeran, yeah. So I read a little bit about that guy a little while ago, and it was kind of fascinating because he, I think he came from England and he just kind of came over to LA and started doing like open mics and stuff. Yeah. And um, playing little gigs and stuff, but like playing all the time. And he's really talented. I know that. And um, he has this huge YouTube channel. It's like one of the top, like in the top, last time I looked, it was in the top 15. I, I was, I became fascinated originally with this dude because I was like looking at some of the top YouTube channels, like what, okay, what's out there, you know? And it's all like, you know, uh, uh, toy unboxing and, uh, <laughs> and nurse, nursery rhymes for kids and like stuff like this. But Ed had one of the only channels in the top, you know, music channels in the top in the top YouTube channel. So that was really interesting to me. And I went and did some research on him. And I was like, wow. So he's kind of old school, actually. Like he came here and sort of met people, came up through the ranks, just like playing live, word of mouth. I think Jamie Foxx saw him. Wow. And Jamie has a, has a recording studio and he invited him, hey, you need some studio time? Like, come in and record. And I think Elton John also became aware of him. So it's really grassroots. And maybe that's how you do it, you know? Like, it's a combination of social media, because obviously he's got one of the top YouTube channels. Um, so he's obviously got, he's got people working for him or he's very aware of, of how to sort of make that work. Mm-hmm. And then also just getting out there on the acoustic guitar and playing gigs and being good, you know, uh, getting in front of people and, and maybe moving, you know, to kind of old school, but moving to a music center like LA, New York, London, wherever, you know, yeah, where people will see you and, you, you know, start talking about you. So I guess, I guess it's that, you know, he's probably a great example of, what to do, uh, what would you do different than, or what would I do different than what I did? I don't know. I mean, what I would do is utilize all the stuff that I have, uh, you know, that's at my disposal now is the social media and everything, but that just didn't exist when I was, you know, we were like beating the street, you know, calling record labels, sending out demo tapes and stuff like that. So it was such a different time that it's hard to make that, you know what I mean? But you just did it differently back then. Perhaps all that energy that you spent trying to get a record label label to pay attention and to give you a deal, you would have spent instead getting your name out there and trying to uh, connect with an audience directly. Yeah, I think, you know, that, that whole th- okay, so there is a whole thing of like trying to get people to like you, like to be impressed by you. And it's like, if we look at the Seattle music scene, you know, those guys didn't care about that, I don't think. 
they played shows. They they developed their own scene because it wasn't reality for them at the time. There was no, you know, it was like the late '80s, and it was like, you know, like hair metal or whatever was big. Um, it, it wasn't it, whatever they were doing wasn't popular, and they just didn't care. They like had their indie scene and put out, you know, albums. You know, friends started labels and put out records by their friends that were in bands and stuff. And it was just a very organic process, and that's how they developed. You know, so yeah, maybe. I wouldn't spend so much time. I'll, t- I'll tell you one thing. I, I So around the time that Surreal McCoy's got a record deal in 95 or 96, whatever that was, and I was sort of getting disillusioned with the whole thing. And because we were like doing a lot of like record company showcases and like, you know, guys in suits standing there watching it with their arms folded, you know, you're like jumping up and down like a monkey, like, you know, impress me, you know, that kind of thing. I, I was a little disillusioned with that. And I started another little songwriting project with a singer songwriter, this girl. And we just used to like make demos on an old BA88, one of those Tascam digital machines. And we were writing these really cool little songs. And on a whim, I just kind of sent out a, a few songs to some labels and stuff, but not like really trying hard or anything. I was like, I was really proud of it. I was like, these are great. And I sent them out and we got all this response back. Like people were like, we love what you do. Like, what, why are you guys like, well, you're in Pasadena. What are you doing? You know? And I, I was like, huh, like, what is it that is connecting with this more than maybe my other band, you know, that was writing original songs? And I think it was just that it was a little more like we didn't care. We were just writing the songs. We weren't trying to write like perfectly crafted pop songs or anything. We were right. just like writing whatever we wanted to. And it was fun and energy, you know, so it's like that thing, like just be yourself. Don't worry about you know, trying to impress people too much. Just just write for yourself and write the best music for you that you can. And then, you know, this is my Guitar Nerd album, really. Like, Guitar Nerd, was, and the reason I put a picture of myself on the cover is like the dumbest picture I could find of myself. Because, uh, seriously, you know, I was like 10 when I took that picture. It's like, this is who I am. And I'm still that guy, and I just don't care anymore. Like, I don't care about impressing you. <laughs> I'm going to write an album that is like, exactly what I want to do. And if you want to listen, that's cool. If you don't, that's fine too. And it's like, that's ironically what I think everybody wants to listen to as listeners. They don't want somebody that's like, they don't want to go see a show with somebody that's trying to impress them or whatever. They want to go see a show with somebody that's having a, being an extrovert and having a great time. You know what I mean? And playing the music they want to play. And then it's like honest art and that, and people get off on that. And that, so I think that's the thing is like, stay true to yourself don't worry about impressing people so much and just be, just be outrageously yourself, like whatever that is. And that's what we respond to as humans. It's very organic, really. Uh, speaking of Guitar Nerd, um, I think it came out in 2011. Since then, you've released three singles. I hear some artists question if it's really even worthwhile to record a full album anymore. What do you think? I think it is. I think it's cool still to do a whole album. Um, my problem is that I'm always making demo videos and it's like, so I get, that's like my writing outlet. Like I haven't put out another record, but there is like 200 little songs out there. Right. <laughs> you know, like on, I spend all my time on that. So it's like, I need to almost like stop making those videos for like two months and just focus on making a record. But, um, I, I think that maybe it doesn't matter so much anymore. Like, you know, does it matter? Like whether people get my music off of YouTube in the form of a video that where I'm demonstrating some pedal, or do you know what I mean? Like it's still songs. I still put my heart and soul into them. I, I don't spend as much time on them as I might on a, on a full album release, but that is me and that's my music. And I, it's like, I don't put out anything I don't like. And maybe it's just like the lines are blurred now. Like for sure. You don't have to put out 12 songs in a package thing. That's so like you can release a single at a time or, uh, you know, many people become stars on YouTube just playing like songs sitting in their bedroom on acoustic guitar or something. You know what I mean? Like, and that it's it's not like some traditional music release. It's like a different medium of getting your music across. So, I guess it doesn't matter as much. You know, maybe the album becomes about if you feel the need to put together a ten or twelve song set of music that expresses where you are at at a certain point in your life musically and artistically. Uh, if that's something that seems important to you as an individual to do, then you do it. Otherwise, does it really matter? I don't know. Maybe you just put up singles, you know? Final question, and it's a broad one. How do you strive to grow as an artist, as a musician? Well, there's always more to learn, you know? Uh, there's just always more to learn. And I see things, you know, it's, it's first of all, to the course of my work, uh, you know, I, I grow just by having to do different gigs and play with different people and different artists. You, 
stretch your shape all the time. It's one of the coolest things about doing side work, sideman work and session work and stuff is that you get thrown in these different situations where it's like sink or swim and you have to like sort of deliver. So I'll give you an example, like for the show that I played with Chris last night, uh, his new album is primarily an acoustic based album and, and there's a lot of finger picking acoustic guitar stuff on it. And I've been really lazy about finger picking for the last five years or so, but he contacted me to do this gig a few weeks ago and I was like, yeah, sure, of course, I'd love to. And then when I sat down to learn the music, I was like, whoa, okay, Travis picking, here we go, you know? And it's like, you know, I had to kind of go to school on it for like the last couple of weeks and sit there, you know, with a metronome and like work up some of these things. And um, you just do it, you know? Uh, so it's kind of through the course of work, I tend to like get pushed into into getting to be a better guitar player a lot, I think. Uh, you know, but it just staying kind of like uh, inspired and listening to different artists and Keeping an open mind, you know, I'll go see Mike Landau play like once or twice a year. And that is always like a major ass kicker where I like a walk out of the baked potato or whatever. And I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> I don't even know how to play the guitar. It's like some instrument that I play and some other instrument that he plays. <laughs> you know, that's a good thing, you know, get a little like, you know, ego adjustment every now and then, like, you know, and realize that there's always more to learn. Seeing live shows, exploring, listening to new music, you know. And then just maybe taking gigs that are outside of your comfort zone a little bit and, and diving into that and being cool with it and just making it work, you know. Pete, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Uh, I'm very grateful that you took the time to speak with me. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Hey, it was great. I can't wait to, uh, to check it out when it comes out. Thanks. Great questions, by the way. Really great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. <laughs> 